Um, one of the most uh, disappointing moments in the long story to get the book born, Baron, one of the readers tonight, got off the plane in Reno, which is the airport near where I live, and you know we kind of small talked for a little bit. He came out to read. I think it was either I think it was last fall, Baron, or maybe the fall before. And he said, so where's the book? What's happening? Because I just received this outrageous review from one of, the, one of the, the blind reviewers at the press it was at at that time. And uh, the next reviewer killed it, just absolutely decimated it. And I said, it's nowhere. It's nowhere. So the fact that it came out at all is a miracle. And the fact that we can do this tonight is a miracle. And I'm so grateful all of you are here. Um, most of all, Thank you to the Studio Center for making this happen. I've been talking to Gary for some time, to Ryan, to John for, and Louise for getting this off the ground so long ago, um, and to all the great friends here. I, um, I simply could not have done the book without a universe of people. Um, you know, his family was paramount. Uh, Rosemary, Joanne, Bo were just... Um, they, they, made, they made it happen. Otherwise, I, I just couldn't have finished the book. It's as simple as that. I want to try and give you an overview of the book, and then, uh, and then you'll hear from the readers. And if we have a moment at the end, I, we were going to close with him reading one of his great poems, The Impossible Indispensability of the Ars Poetica. But our little tiny Mac doesn't have very loud speakers. So I guess we could all huddle around the Mac, and you could try and listen. Or, uh, or I'll read you one, but we'll figure that out. Um, <clears throat> so the slide you're seeing is from a PowerPoint presentation that I've been doing uh, w back home since the book's come out, so I'm going to give you a... We're not going to mess with that. I just put this up so you could see his, his face. And, uh, and uh, you heard, some of you maybe heard the, the interview today uh, and hear his voice. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I, I'd probably just listen to him reading poems tonight. So somewhere over 30 years ago, and I've stopped counting for obvious reasons, I've lost much of my hair and what's left is gray, um, Hayden and I began corresponding, and this is an old story in Hayden's life, you know, that Hayden and I began corresponding. He was uh, the poetry editor at Harper's, and I'd been reading some things he wrote, and I wrote him a letter very impetuously and said, you know, dear Hayden, can't you see that these are great poems and shouldn't you publish them right now? Something you say in your 20s when, you, when you're absolutely ignorant. And instead of, you know, throwing that letter away and, and not answering me, he wrote me a very loving letter. And he didn't really know me well, he just, we'd been corresponding. And he said, you know, in general, Sean, I prefer poetry that is direct statement of acutely perceived experience. And yet he went on to spend four more paragraphs telling me that what I did write was actually okay. And that's really what became the genesis of this book. And so for the next more than 30 years, I began gathering everything I could about him. And then also impetuously, about 10 years after that, Debbie and I were in New York City. And uh, we took the Staten Island fer Ferry across the river. And I said, you know, Hayden lives in this state. We should call him and go see him. And she says, are you out of your mind? And I said, no, I want to go do that. Debbie's my wife. She's the one in front here. And I called him. I found his number in the New York City phone book, or New York State phone book, and I called him. And he said, are you out of your mind? And uh, I said, no, I really want to come see you. And I was dead serious. And he said, okay. And we drove up. And uh, that's the first time I met him in person. And that was in the mid-80s sometime. 
And then, uh, you know, it really began to get much more um, in-depth after that, and I, I just uh, had to then really learn everything I could about him. But I also learned something else, that in the middle of our friendship there was this gaping hole, and it seemed to me that what was so apparent to so many of you in the room and so many of his readers all across the universe was not very apparent to the literary community, and that is that he was a great poet. Um, you know, the, the last three major anthologies of American poetry published in the last 10 years, only, only one of them had two of his poems in it, and that was the one by Rita Dove, and I'll leave the other names out. So that should tell you a whole lot for a man that just died five years ago and probably did more to change the universe of American poetry than any other contemporary American poet, and that's from his peers, not from me. So um, when I began to get serious about the book, it was about a decade ago, and I, uh, I have a pretty full-time job. I run a nonprofit, a busy nonprofit. We do a lot of work with children and families. I, um, I got up early in the morning and started reading everything I could by and about him. Uh, I read for three years to find the distinct things, themes that I could organize and put into a book that would chronologically show his artistic and intellectual development across the 60 years of his life work. And those four themes were realist, because he loved to write about real things, real places, real people. He also wrote very highly crafted poetry, which I'll talk about in a minute. The next theme was jazz man, because he loved the jazz and blues, and he loved to incorporate that into his poetry and make it part of the word that came out, the spoken word. He wanted the spoken word to be jazz, and if he had lived in a perfect world, it would have been jazz that he became famous for, not literature. And the next is survivor, because I don't have to tell any of you, if you knew his work or knew him, he lived through hell. He had horrible, horrible fear of going outside, agoraphobia, long struggle with drink and smoke, long struggle with mental illness, etc., etc. And yet, in spite of it all, uh, he wrote on and wrote much of the poetry that has affected the generation to follow. And the last chapter is The Innovator. He made poetic forms that had not been made, and most notably the paragraph, a, a highly evolved 15-line sonnet with a rhyming couplet in the middle which is a bit of a puzzle that he had to make for himself, a, a difficult enough challenge that he could find something worthy of his polymath mind. He's just, he was, he, his, his, his reading was absolutely consumptive. He, he wrote reviews about everything from, you know, 15th century uh, French philosophy to, to, to 20th century jazz and everything in between, and he could do it well. So he needed something to challenge him. And every time he did this, he kept pushing it farther, and he got more and more bored and impatient with the forms that he could figure out. So he'd try something new, the, the Georgics, which are not Virgil's Georgics, but they're the, the city speech of, 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 of the, the dwellers and, and, and all of the, the suburbs of, of Syracuse, and the Clay Hill Anthology, and on and on and on, but more. And the Vermont narratives are probably the thing that he's rem remembered more, most for, the great poems that he wrote in this community, which is why it's such an honor to be here tonight to celebrate the birth of, of, this, of this book. That's his lasting work, and that's where the great humanity that came from the, the depth of his writing emanated from his, his relationships in this community. It was the values based on thrift, hard labor, poverty, community, all of those tough things that go on when you live and work with somebody for 20 years, which is what he did here, and it's what Rosemarie did here, and what their son Beau did here. And 
And his, his work in this community gave birth then to that greater humanist persona. He was as tough as nails as he could be with making sure that his work in the end was authentic. It had to mean something to him and to his reader. And I think that's ultimately what exiled him from the literary mainstream. He was kept out of the literary mainstream because of ins his insistence on authenticity. And if the literary mainstream had really paid attention to the paragraphs, the Sleeping Beauty, the Contramortem, the, the paragraphs are in Brothers I Loved You All, they would have seen the genius that he was. And I think, that, I think his inner circle, Don Hall, Galway Cannell, Carolyn Kaiser, Adrian Rich, Denise Levertov knew exactly what he was doing and loved him for it and kept him from the fire, kept him from going down in a funeral pyre. I was with Hayden through so much thick and thin, and I don't know if it was the cosmos or what it was, but inevitably I'd show up to visit him or he'd come to Reno and all manner of bad stuff would happen. I was in, I was in New York when when he had his massive heart attack and um, you know in typical Hayden form he yanked out the IVs and stormed out of the ICU with the oxygen up his nose to light a cigarette. True story. Well, Adrian Rich writes him this, this incredible letter and says, Hayden, don't go. You can't go. We need you. I need you. And these letters poured in from the universe and the, the constellation of American poetry, and they were heartwarming and heart-wrenching letters, and I read them to him because he, he was just too knocked out. And that happened over and over again. He showed up in Reno to read. He had... He had double pneumonia and the doctor said there's a 15% chance Mr. Carruth you're not getting back on the plane like forever you're gonna you, this is their, your last stop Mr. Carruth and so he literally had to sit still for two weeks because he couldn't go on to Stanford to read where he's gonna finally make a little money and bring something home to eat couldn't do it and so through all of this we became pretty close and um, I knew that I then had to try and tackle this bear that was in the room that I did not know how to do. I had no idea how to put this book together when I started. It's not a biography and it's not literary criticism. It's something in the middle. And that means it's neither fish nor fowl. And so it was hard then to find a way forward. And there was no geography, no landscape. I had to make my own architecture for the book. And that was the most difficult and daunting task that would adequately show who he was as a person and why he had to write what he wrote. I couldn't just do one or the other. They would have been skeletal if they were apart. And then it took me seven years to find a publisher for the book. I started out with Michigan. They had just stopped publishing this under, under discussion series that was started by Don Hall when he was the editor there because of the recession and everything else. And I was down to contract four other times, and all four times it went up in a funeral pyre. Finally, in desperation, uh, a year ago, September, after that uh, really ugly rejection that I talked to you about when Barron came, uh, Marilyn Hacker said, Sean, if, some, if, if all else fails, write me. I'm the editor now at Michigan. And I said, Michigan? I, just start, I started at Michigan first seven years ago. You can't be serious. She said, I'm dead serious. So I wrote her and I sent her the book. 
and uh, the book was 600 pages of typed manuscript at that point, edited down from 900. She says, I want to do this book. You have to cut it to 350. I said, I can't. I said, it's, it's, it's his life and his life work, and it's, it's all been wrapped up into one large, big self, and I can't take off parts that, that seem extraneous because they build to a greater whole. They build to this bigger person called Hayden, and the reader won't understand him if I keep doing that to the book. And, and, the, and so I, I started cutting. And in the end, uh, somewhere around the spring of that year, she said to me, I, I was completely, I didn't know where to go. I was, I, was in a, I was in a rowboat at sea with no raft and no oar. I, she said, toss the introduction. By then it had been read by 11 really fine poets, edited and critiqued. She said, toss it and use the introductions to the four sections, combine them, start over, cut four of the six interviews in the book, cut significantly from published essays by published authors, big guns in the book, otherwise they're not going in the book, and you will be the messenger if you want some real fun on that one, and then we'll talk. So that September, Michigan took it. Marilyn pushed me harder than I've ever been pushed by any writer. I grew more in my fifth decade than I've grown in my whole life. I had to go back and read every single book, every single reference, from Virgil to Edwin Muir and everybody in between. I read three translations of Virgil, and it was only when I got to the intralinear Latin English that I got the right quote for the epigraph to the introduction. And I've never met a woman who was, was, was appeared to Hayden the way Marilyn was, and it was only because she loved him the way that all of you do and the way that I do, that she stuck with this and stuck with me to get this book in the world. So if you meet her, say thank you. So that's, um, that's a little tiny bit of what happened. <laughs> and um, so I hope what we can do tonight is really have some fun and, and you can hear what's, what's, what's going to be shared uh, by these great writers that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm up here tonight with. So um, let's have Jeff read first, and then uh, David will follow him, and Baron and Rosemary, and then if we're not out of time, I'll, I'll close with one of his poems. As I said, I had taped it, um, but I don't think you can hear it. So, Jeffrey, would you like to come up? Told we got to avoid the white cord side, so you got to come this way. I'll probably just stand. Okay, here. all right. If they can hear you, great. This is a great book. It has so much of Hayden and of the people who love Hayden, and I think we need to thank Sean for putting this extraordinary project together. <laughs> Man, the wood 
and split and trucked and stacked. No wonder the axe been yearning and drooping like a poor lone gander for them old jeans. Look at it. Get set. Let the woods take warning. Come six in the morning, me and them jeans is back. What I mean, ready. We going to go and don't care nothing for nothing, baby. Not even the snow. Hayden uh, played with the language in so many wonderful ways. He wrote poems in dialect that are probably completely accurate but are unquotable by anybody but Hayden and or the people whose dialect he was borrowing. So I chose a very modest example of that because I can't handle the more difficult ones. This is one of my favorite poems of Hayden's. Johnny Spain's White Effort. The first time I saw Johnny Spain was the first time I came to this town. There he was, lantern jaw and broken nose, wall-eyed and fractious, with a can of beer in one hand and a walkie-talkie in the other, out in front of the post office. And I heard someone saying, Johnny, what in hell are you doing? I'm looking, he answered in an executive tone, for me goddamn white guy. Run off, did she? Yes, he said, busted me south side fence, the bitch. If some thieving bastard didn't bust it for her. You reckon she's running loose on Main Street? Johnny looked down, then up, then sideways, or possibly all three together. Hell no, he growled. She's off there somewheres. He swung his beer can in a circle. Me boys is up in the hills looking. I'm directing the search. <laughs> then he turned away to a crackle on the walkie-talkie. And that was how Johnny liked it. He wasn't much on farming, although his farm could have been a fine one, closest to town, up on the hillside, overlooking the feed mill. But Johnny's curse was a taste for administration. <laughs> the farm was no more than a falling down barn, some mixed head of cattle, and a flock of muddy ducks. Johnny was the first man in the volunteer fire department to have one of those revolving blue lights set up on top of his car, and Johnny Spain was always going to a fire. When he came down off that hill of his in his airborne 65 Pontiac, look out! It was every man for himself when Johnny was on the highway. I used to think sometimes I had a glimpse of that white effort that Johnny never found. A goddamn beauty, he'd say, by Jesus, she was. Why, I'd give five whole greenback dollars cash and a pair of Indian runners to blue ball Baxter for her when she were a calf. There wasn't a finer effort in the whole goddamn country. I'd see a flash of white in the balsas at the upper end of the pasture or in the thickets across the brook when I looked up at twilight. But I never found her. Probably all I saw was a deer tail flashing. After they changed the town dump 
into a sanitary landfill operation. The selectmen hired Johnny for custodian, and they gave him a little Michigan gozer to bury the trash with. Johnny loved it. Dump it over there, he hollered. God damn it, can't you see the sign? One time, tires and metal go on the other side. One time, he even inaugurated a system of identification cards so people from Suckerville and Irish Town would quit using our dumping. By God, you had to show your pass, even if Johnny had known you for years. <laughs> Part of the deal was salvage, of course. Johnny could take whatever he wanted from the accumulated junk and sell it. Trouble was, he mostly didn't or couldn't sell it, so wound up in his barnyard, everything from busted baby carriages to stacks of old lard kegs from the diner up there to be viewed by whoever cared to look. And the one with the best view was Mel Barstow, son of the mill owner who lived on the hill above the other side of town. There they were, two barons above the bird, facing each other at opposite ends like the west wind and the east wind on an old-time map. Mel had everything he thought he wanted, a home like a two-page spread in house and garden, for instance, and a wife that was anyone's envy, and a pair of binoculars with which he liked to watch the gulls flying over the river. Of course he'd seen Johnny's place many a time, but one evening he focused down on that barnyard, then quick got on the phone. Johnny, why in hell don't you clean up that mess over there? It's awful. It's a disgrace. Johnny didn't say much, but a couple of nights later, maybe about an hour past dark, he phoned up Mel. <laughs> Mel, he said, I got me a pair of them by no over Clarksville this forenoon, and I've been studying them goddamn birds over there, and what I want to know is why in the hell you don't tell that good-looking female of yours to put some clothes on her backside when she's parading up and down behind that picture window. <laughs> picture, hell, I'll say it's a picture, it's a goddamn friggin' disgrace if you want to know the truth. Well, I expect for a while, Mel's wife was the one that would have liked to get lost. And maybe Mel too, because it's a cinch. You can't go down to buy even a pack of Winston's at the IGA without running into Johnny Spain. And of course, Johnny's the one that knows exactly, exactly how to keep the sting alive. Winking, wall-eyed, both ways at once, grinning that three-toothed grin. <laughs> But Johnny Spain's white heifer was what was lost. She wasn't found. Wherever she is, she's gone. Oh, I'm not the only one who thought they saw her, because reports kept coming in all the way around from the old settlement up to Marview's gravel pit. But that's all they were, just reports. She had made a first-rate cow, I reckon, if a man could have caught her. Only, of course, somewhat more than a mite wild.
My name is David Budville. Can you hear okay? Um, I'm going to read a section of my essay that's in this book called From Sorrow's Well, <clears throat> called When You Use Your Head, Your Ears Fall Off. My 20 years of listening to music with the supernumerary cockroach. I printed it out so I can see it better. For the past 20 years, and it's really been 43 now, Hayden Cruth has been, for me, a Hawkeye critic and steadfast friend. Over the years together, we've been through myriad personal traumas in both our lives, shared many mutual loves and hates, pleasures and consternations. And through all this, we've spent almost all of our time together not talking about literature or gossiping about fellow writers, in fact, not talking at all, but listening instead to music. What we have shared most and most deeply over the years is our mutual love for the music invented by African Americans, the music some people call jazz. When Hayden and I <clears throat> listen to music together, although it seems almost ridiculous to have to say this, we listen. We don't talk while the music is playing. We talk after the music stops. Music is a conversation in another language. It is someone speaking directly to you. And as your mother must have told you, it's impolite to talk while someone else is speaking. We've spent 20 years listening together, and we are not, and when we are not together, which is most of the time, we send tapes back and forth and then talk and write to each other about what we hear. I want to remember here three specific times out of those 20 years of listening together. I first wrote this um, essay in 1990. First, 20 years ago, I was just getting to know Hayden. I was at the little house on Clay Hill in Johnson, Vermont. We were in his tiny living room. Hayden said, listen to this. And he put on his old and rickety portable player a cut from a record he uh, made live at the 1959 Belgium World's Fair Jazz Festival. The players were Sidney Bechet on soprano sax, Buck Clayton on trumpet, Vic Dickinson on trombone, and a rhythm section neither one of us can remember. It was a blues simply called Society Blues, one of those names thought up in a second and stuck onto a tune to give it a name for the album, an impromptu blues of numerous choruses over basic changes, a chance for each soloist to have his say. And when it came Vic Dickinson's turn, he had plenty to say. He launched into his solo and proceeded to utter one of the most scathing bits of social commentary I have ever heard. He played the ugliest, nastiest, meanest, most sarcastic, most biting, most hilarious set of, let Hayden say it the way he said it another time when he talked about Vic Dickinson. Smears, brays, Christ, the dirtiest noise imaginable. Belches, farts, curses, but it was music. And in, in other words, how else is a black man lost in a racist society to have his say and still keep his neck the length it's supposed to be.
Defiance, defiance. Vic Dickinson had articulated an essential element in the music of jazz and blues, defiance. Last year I had a conversation with saxophonist David Murray in which we were both bemoaning the state of lifelessness and cons conservatism that has swept through not only poetry and, and jazz, but all the arts. I remember at one point Murray saying, when I was coming up, we just naturally felt it was important to defy. Second, 10 years ago, this time we're at my house, I had just gotten a new record called Improvisations a piano duet with Rand Blake and Jackie Byer. Hayden and I sat on the couch and did what we, we always do, listen. Putting Rand Blake, an atonal, non-melodic, arrhythmic, analytic player together with Jackie Byer, the swinging, soulful, hard-driving, emotional player, is like trying to mix oil and water. This encounter between third-stream guru and master of Charles Mingus's transmogrified blues roots was an instruction in the nature and necessity of voice. Duke Ellington said, a man's sound is his total personality. If the reed instruments are the easiest instruments on which to produce your own personal sound, the piano has got to be the most difficult. Yet even on an instrument so unyielding to individual sound as a piano, these two men spoke clearly and distinctly and separately as they spoke together out of their vastly different sensibilities and voices. You can't be who you ain't. To quote Thelonious Monk, how could I be anything other than who I am? A man is a genius just for looking like himself. Third, five years ago, Hayden was headed east from Syracuse to do a reading at New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire, where our mutual friend Joel Oppenheimer was teaching. On his way south, Hayden stopped at my, by my place and picked me up so that we could travel with, so I could travel with him to the reading. It would be nice. We'd have a few days together, not much to do but hang out, visit Joel and the vivacious and beautiful Teresa, and do what we always do when we get together, listen to music. We got on Interstate 89 in Montpelier and headed south to New Hampshire, then promptly got off the interstate at the first exit, both of us being well sick of years of high-speed interstate driving, and slowed the trip down to a leisurely toodle. And as we drove in that insular privacy, a car in motion affords, we listened to music. First that day, we listened to Hayden's beloved Sidney Bechet. Hayden had introduced me to Bechet years before. In my early days of listening to Bechet, I did not appreciate him. I came to musical consciousness during the, that time in the mid-1950s when bebop was in full bloom. And to my bebop ears, Bechet's music sounded too much like Dixieland. I had already, something I had already learned to hate for its cliched phrases and pat emotions. On closer examination, however, in the care of someone with the depth of knowledge and, cons and concern Hayden has for music, 
I had come to see how Bechet and his friends were anything but pat and cliché. I began to be able to hear the hard-driving passion of Bechet's playing, his relentless emotional intensity. Then Hayden played an album by Odetta, who I'm sure, <clears throat> I'm sure just about everybody thinks is a folk singer. On this album, however, Odetta sings the blues. And again, here was a musician fairly exploding with emotional intensity and drive. Odetta's verbal and rhythmic articulation is so sharp and cutting, it's almost menacing. Her songs are full of painful, uh, full of the painful openness of the blues. Ain't it hard to stumble when you got no place to fall? I said, ain't it hard to stumble when you got no place to fall? Stranger here, stranger everywhere. I would go home, but honey, I'm a stranger there. But full also of political content. Oh, Mr. Rich Man, Rich Man, open up your heart and mind. Mr. Rich Man, Rich Man, open up your heart and mind. Give the poor man a chance. Help stop these hard, hard times. While you're living in, a, in your mansion, you don't know what hard times mean. While you're living in your mansion, you don't know what hard times mean. Poor man's wife is starving. Your wife is living like a queen. And we drove on toward Henniker and toward Joel and Teresa, listening and talking, and then listening some more. Here I'm going to skip a passage about Ben Webster, Hayden's favorite after Sidney Bechet, musician, and conclude with, as Gil Evans put it, all great music has to have a cry somewhere. All players, all music has to have that cry. No one cried more completely or included in his repertoire a greater range of cries. Cries of anguish, sadness, silly joy, sexual ecstasy, hatred, sarcasm, rage, grief, than Ben Webster and Hayden Carruth. Thank you. Is Baron Wormser, and it's very precious to be here tonight um, to celebrate Hayden's enormous achievements and Shaw Griffin's enormous commitment to making a book about Hayden happen, truly a selfless act. I want to quote in this context no less a sage than Albert Einstein. When asked what would make children more intelligent, Einstein replied, if you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. And if you want them to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. This may not have been the answer many would have thought a scientist of Einstein's caliber would have given, but I think Hayden would have understood it perfectly. For Hayden dwelt in the land of imagination and recognized the imaginative nature of everything human beings do. 
He reveled in that aspect of life and recognized utterly how poetry was at the center of that imaginative spirit. For me, the poem of Hayden's that is at the center is his long poem, The Sleeping Beauty. As the title indicates, it is a work steeped in the world of fairy tales. It travels through time and space, through ordeals and insights, all the while celebrating not only the nature of imagination, but the depth of imagination. How the fairy tale is one of the truest expressions of human feeling, right up there with the jazz solo. What is extraordinary about the poem is that it takes place very much in the realm of the 20th century, a time that as it pursued facts, ideologies, and causes was antithetical to mere flights of imagination, as if human beings had better things to do than tell old stories and make up new ones. Yet the 20th century was very much a proving ground for the lore that informs fairy tales, the suffering that may go unredeemed, the hope that lives on, the enchantment that poisons, the kindness that may go unnoticed, the cruelties of fate, and most of all, and again at the center of Hayden's achievement, the power of love. So I want to use my remaining time here to read uh, some poems to you from the, toward the end of the Sleeping Beauty. Um, the poems are numbered, and uh, you will hear how, many, how what I've been talking about pertains to what Hayden wrote. 109. He thinks and wonder how love was all that was at the beginning, the little human creature, in its blood cave knew nothing else but only love, its nurture, its garment, its pulsing name, its pain and ease, its world. Then came the emerging, the cold, cause separated at once from effect, a thing to be observed, act was all, and love like dropped mercury scattered in its parts, wandering, mirroring, called by such names as fear, greed, altruism, hatred, the shattered self. World was a sorrowing, many voices, always cold. Oh, take them then, these strangely precious fragments, involve them, thou spirit-bearing word, in their old oneness, that they may be love again. 110. He was a soldier, he was a madman, he was a hermit, always in deprivation, always in love. The cast-out seraph within him yearns for the unattainable, to give, to give, and give to the wounded, imprisoned, poor, and ever to women, the captive people. What for? He asked and asked. No death delayed, not one lover was left undismayed in her ego torture. Love solves nothing. He matured in despondency, the old deep melancholia. But again, what for? The abhorred stars in their slow explosion creep through the sky mindless, and the mindless moon is a loveliness that mocks him. Mind is sleep, dream, evolutionary error, bound for extinction 
soon. 111. He used to think his escape was in lucidity and refusal and rebellion. But against that, to see now is to see futility. The stars creep. What is human authenticity then but a nullity striving to create a value and getting beauty instead dripping with blood? Will is the will to exploit. But still in his depression, deepening toward paralysis, he has one more task. Driven in blindness, driven as the stars in their orbits, knowing the outcome will be grotesque, a pain beyond bearing and with nothing left to prove. He must go to the princess with nothing left to ask. He must go. The prince who is human, driven, and filled with love. Your dream, this is 112, your dream. The letters HIV appear as if in blood on the wall of consciousness, and a voice comes out of the air, your own voice saying, yes, human immunodeficiency virus, my dear, for you in the heart of love. So near the breakdown of nature was sexual order from which rose everything you know or make or see so insubstantial, fallen like a house of cards, now jumbled, crazy, useless. The wind still blows. The sullen sea still beats. You had only to think a crack in reality. And there it is, appalling, you and everyone standing there on the brink. Read two more from this. 113. Now he goes into this world of the uh, firebombing of Dresden. Any fire will do. You who are sleeping in a nest of flames, Dornrush and Brunhilde, in the red, red thorns, in petals fleeting, any burning city, a firestorm occurs when the degrees of heat reach 1100 Fahrenheit. Flame spreads in sheets, a huge wind rises. Soon the oxygen is exhausted. Three attacks, mosquitoes, Lancasters, fortresses with long-ranging Mustangs to strafe the crowds. Next day, a leopard from the zoo sprawled in a plane tree with two naked women below in the charred boughs. Everywhere, soldiers tried to cremate heaped bodies with flamethrowers. Now the smell thickens, ashes still fall. Dresden has died. 114. People burned, came apart, suffocated, melted, they drowned in the Elba, trying to flee the flames. The swinger was rubbled, the gardens, the Altstadt, everywhere crazed. That porcelain city, Florence of the north, stone which exulted for beauty, flesh for romance, all split, all spilt. Death, you can be kind. You kiss lovers in their blissfulness, is this your doing? Where little flames still flicker like rings of thorn, a crazy man in a smoldering coat, bloody, blistered, wanders and mumbles, utterly crazy, 
poking the darkness, the ashes, stumbling, rebuking the corpses of children, crazy, 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 wandering, crying, laughing, cursing, looking. The Sleeping Beauty by Hayden Carruth. Thank you. everybody. I'm glad to be here with you old friends and new neighbors. Are there any townspeople here? Oh yeah, <laughs> a few. <clears throat> it is wonderful that the Studio Center has gener generously supported Sean Griffin's Labor of Love. The book of essays and letters for and about Hayden and his work, his struggle to find his place in the world and among the ranks of the poetic community. Hayden and I came here in 1963 together with our son David, called Sabo, who had his first birthday in the little house by the brook that we named Crow's Mark. For Hayden, this was the first step towards independence after living for years in seclusion after his breakdown and hospitalizations. Here, living in nature and living the hard physical life of a countryman, splitting wood to keep us warm, raising, raising vegetables, for our table, he found back his physical strength and gathered confidence. He felt accepted, made friends. Very, very important was his friendship, our friendship, with Marshall Washer and with our close neighbors, the Parkhursts. Later we met with David Budbill and his wife Lois Eby and Jeff Hewitt, and Janet Lind, his wife. <clears throat> Who were our best and truest friends, these two? Eventually, the network became greater and greater, especially in summer. Poets from all over the US and even some from Europe would stop at our doorstep, most of them unannounced. <laughs> I baked a lot of cookies and served a lot of tea. <laughs> Johnson and Crossmark 
for Hayden's place to find himself and eventually to go out into the bigger world. But he always longed for, Mon for Vermont. He always thought of ways he might come back. He always talked to me about how good it was to be here. I hope tonight he's listening for wherever he is, sitting and arguing with Ezra Pound and maybe Catullus and maybe Virgil and Baudelaire, who knows? <laughs> and some of the newly departed poets whom he loved, Denise Levertov and Adrian Rich, uh, Surely there too. And you know what? They're all speaking the same language, poetry. I have a few poems I would like to read from the time Hayden lived here. Uh, the first one is from Contra Mortem. The Brook. A threefold obstacle, the center rock so enormous only a glacial hand could lift it or settle it in this bed. The hemlock fallen long since and drifted into the wide right cleft between rock and bank, stripped by the current denuded of limbs and bark, and yet still green, emerald green with moss and its great crest new-grown among cardinal, cardinal flowers. Then in the narrower channel on the left, an iron pot out at the bottom and at last forever full. The stone, the flower, the artifact to mark the brookfall singing flutes in the trees, music never faltering, always exact rising, falling in the remote black seas. That rock that he mentions there at, on the first line is the rock where I used to find Hayden. If he was not in the house and he was not in his workshop, the cowshed, he would be there. And that's where I would find him when I came home. Here another little excerpt from North Winter, also about the brook. The brook and the landscape around the house uh, were the source of many poems. The day the brook went out was still midwinter, locked in zodiacal fastness, yet rain fell and fell in fact so much the snow turned green and the water in the brook covered the ice like urine until at one crack the whole damn thing let go. Ice and muddy water, trees, stones, bits of lumber, snow, like a racketing express through a local, local stop and then subsided, leaving the banks dark and dirty, raw and torn, with new patterns of rocks looking unfamiliar what a purgation, it was wild and beautiful. The result wasn't bad either, all told, for the brook is rising again 
after the long ice-bound repression, singing a midwinter rebel song. And here, the frozen brook sprawls in sunlight, a tree of glass uprooted. Hayden always was very interested in the birds and plants around where we lived and wrote many poems about them. Lover of balsam and lover of white pine, oh crossbill, crossbill, cracking unseen with, unseen with, of all things, scissors, seeds, seeds, a fidget for ears, and pumped in the meadows, silence, silence, a crackling thorn, a flame in the meadows, cold, cold. Another one. Snow buntings swirling on the snowy field, cut glass reflections on a ceiling. And one about jays, those noisy, but they can also be very melodious. Uh, five jays discuss good and evil in a white birch like five blue fingers playing a guitar. And one that we all experienced, it, it was such a lucky thing to see the owls sitting right outside our window, so much covered in snow that we didn't at first, but it was sitting on my wash line, <laughs> on my laundry line. Um, the Arctic owl moved across the snow-smooth meadow to the, bark, to the dark balsam without sound, without wind, wing beat, more quiet than a fish, more effortless than the gliding seed, as if it were a white thought of love, moving, moving over the pasture to home. Another one about birds, small things, hardest to believe. A red pole snatching drops from an icicle. Uh, this is a longer poem and very personal also. But again, within a story of nature. In an afternoon bright with September, or in an old dissension bright with fear, I went wandering where there was purity in white ladies', ladies tresses, hiddenness in peeping bluebottle gentians and where many species of goldenrod and asters made funeral for the lost summer world, and ferns taken by frost made russet the fields and turned the waysides yellow and brown. It struck me that I had wandered all my years like this, half a century, 
searching for the touch that heals. But there is no touch. Searching everywhere for the look that says, I know. But there is no look. This is Vermont, the land hidden from violent times, far from the center of life, they say. I walk by the gray brook, around the knoll, through the pines. Winter is coming, searching, searching with my hand. I feel September's little knives, and with my eyes I see bright patterned leaves in the matted grass. I hear the song, if it be a song. These insistent little bright fearful, hesitant murmurs from high in the old pine tree. One more about trees. <laughs> birches, 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 true and white, demure of habit and standing on ceremony, bending his ear, left and right, a class of in I'm sorry, a groove, a, gro a grove of classical harmony, and yet some secret moves among them. Light quivers. It is the aspens twinkling. The night comes up raining a dark breeze, ruffling the spirit, and the near trees quicken, sparkle, vanish to the forest among dogwood and elm. Bruce and balsam, viburnum and sweet locust, beech, rock maple, tamarack, alder, a congress, a quiet congress, for not one leaf intrudes predominantly. Yet this repose, this calm, this being fills the night of the living woods. And I had another poem, it's in my bag. <laughs> I forgot to bring it. Sorry. There we are. Thank you. Oh, this is um, Brothers, I Loved You All. And the poem is Crow's Mark. Um, they don't say gully, cove, cut, gulch, glen, dell, etc. around here. They call it a gulf, meaning something less than a notch but more than a ravine. And my house sits in the bottom of Footbrook Gulf. Back about 120 years or so, the house was a barn, more like a shed a utility building attached to a sawmill on the brook. Well, all the mills that's left now is part of the old foundation, but the shed was converted into a house by tacking on a smaller shed. I can show you where they towed in the spikes through the two wall plates to serve as a kitchen. It still does. The house is called Crowsmark. Don't ask me why. I know, but I'm tired of telling. I know too. 
It's the south running brook, the foot, rising back up on the beaver meadows and butternut mountain, which means the gulf runs north, south, too, roughly. But in turn means the winter wind that's usually more west than north sails overhead. We hear it, a roar in the trees above, but we don't feel it. Why, I've seen sheets of snow flung over us, flopping and flapping, and we dead calm underneath. Of course, Marshall in his farmhouse up on the crest gets it full blast. So it's a good day's work to walk from the house to the barn sometimes, it seems as though. On the other hand, still nights in winter, the cold spills down over the pastures, the ledges into the gulf till it's 35 below on my thermometer, while Marshall sits snug and comfy in the warmth of the upper air, where it's only 25 under the zero, as I make sure to point out to him next morning. And then sometimes, usually 10 or 12 nights a winter, the wind wears round due north, straight down from the pole, and when it hits the gulf, it's like full choke on a 12-gauge barrel compression. You know what I mean? I mind one time in January 68, I think it was, the wind blew the beam of my flashlight twice round the maple by the woodshed and wrapped it tight. You don't believe me? Ask Marshall. The flashlight was hanging there <laughs> still next morning. I let it stay till the batteries wore out and it fell down. <laughs> Fortunately, the wind at Crow's Mark sits mostly west by north, through the waterville notch over our heads. And last but not least, missing the bow. Remember, the bow is our son. Missing the bow in the hen house. In here, caught by the storm, how the rain beats on the metal roof, and hens peck at my feet. These my ladies, their mournful pessimism, I, 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 oh, and my boy whom I have loved, how shall I say it or sing it more than myself, more than my poems that are myself, more than the world that is my poems. Ladies, these 13 years, and now he is turning, turning away. I know we are carried about the sun, out, about and about. This conglomeration, a higgledy-piggledy planet, incomprehensible. I could not be part of it, and I am carried. Desire long ago beaten out so that I wanted small things only, a song, a boy. No, it will not cohere this world, relentless years, and it will not. Mind cannot make it. Ladies, do you know ever what it means to be carried? Whoa, ladies, the boy is turning, a current runs on the grass. And the dark falls early. Come now, up to your roost, and let the evening dance begin. 
the snow sarabande, aft by four or aft by aft, which shall it be, turning, turning in the cadence of your song? Ay, 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 oh, slower and slower. Good night, ladies, in your hurtling house. The time of the mouse has come. The rain strums on your roof. Keep close and keep warm. Bless me if you are able. Commend me to the storm. Good night, good night.